Well, we're beginning today uh, a brand new series um, which really walks with Jesus on his journey uh, towards the cross. And we're going to start at the beginning of what we call Holy Week, and we're going to work through, in particular, Luke's Gospel and what Luke tells us about what Jesus did, uh, what he taught, where he went, who he was with, uh, in the, with the aim that by the time we actually get to Palm Sunday and Holy Week itself, when often a lot of our focus is on um, big celebratory gatherings altogether, that we'll have done a little bit of a sort of the spade work in advance, and we'll have been able to think just a, a little bit more quiet and a little bit more um, sort of depth about what's happening. And so several weeks ahead of schedule, as it were, we come to Palm Sunday today, uh, we, don't worry, we're still going to do Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday, but it'll be in a very different context. And so I'd love you to look with me um, at Luke chapter 19. You'll find that on page 1054. Page 1054. We're going to start reading uh, at verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. And we're going to read about the way in which Jesus with his disciples makes very careful preparations for his entry into Jerusalem. Uh, We're going to read about how he sends them ahead uh, to find a very particular animal for him to sit on and thereby um, enter into Jerusalem the way he had always planned. And what we actually find if we read Luke's gospel as a whole is that this is by no means the first point at which Luke has sort of pointed towards Jerusalem as being Jesus' destination. In fact, if you go all the way back to Luke 13 you find Luke talking about when he was on the way to Jerusalem. Luke 18, he says, while he was on the way to Jerusalem. Luke 19, when he was on the way to Jerusalem. Um, The the sort of whole second half of Luke's gospel is all about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. But actually, the preparations for his entry into Jerusalem go even further back. Because the whole reason that Jesus chooses to enter Jerusalem in the way he does is to fulfill the words of the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 9, hundreds of years before. And then hundreds, if not thousands of years before that, God's promises about Jerusalem are set before King David, and even before that, um, the promises of the promised land to Abraham. So we're going to read this passage together, and we're going to think a little bit about, well, why was Jerusalem so important? Why was it inevitable that the Messiah would come there and die there and rise again there? And what's that got to say to us as we prepare for Easter itself? So page 1054, uh, Luke Chapter 19, I'm going to start to read at verse 28. Jesus went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As Jesus approached Jerusalem 
and saw the city, Jesus wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Luke's Gospel, like all the Gospels, is a very deliberately um, woven and, and structured piece of writing. He doesn't just sort of bung things down on paper as he thinks of them. He, he puts a story together in order to lead us towards the truth. So what you find is back in Luke chapter 13, where he first starts talking about Jesus heading towards Jerusalem, you find Jesus in advance of getting there in Luke 13 verse 33, talking about Jerusalem again and weeping in advance, as it were. Over Jerusalem. He says there, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. It's like two bookends between this, uh, at either end of this journey towards Jerusalem. And at both ends of the bookend, you find these two things happening Jesus expressing God's heart for his people. And that heart being revealed as deep sorrow that they're missing out. That they're going to miss out on the very thing they've been longing for all of these years. So why Jerusalem? Why this triumphal procession? And why were Israel, ancient Israel, in danger of missing out on what God had promised them? Let me take a quick step back. You may or may not agree looking around, but All Souls has been described as a midlife church. Uh, we're talking on average here, um, though those of you who'd like to take it as a compliment, that's, that's grand. And those of you who take that as a, a great insult to your youth, uh, bear with me for a moment. But for a great number of people in All Souls, um, we are either eyeing the prospect of midlife warily, or looking back on midlife with relief or right in the middle of that midlife crisis, and whether that's a red Porsche or a new hairstyle or running marathons or taking up painting or whatever that looks like. Um, All Souls is full of, and I include myself in this, full of many of us for whom midlife is a present or at least very recent reality. And even if it isn't, we know what it is to reach uh, that point in life where looking back gives us a sense of nostalgia. Those sort of golden days when things were even better, when we were in our prime, when the body didn't ache quite as much as it did now, when we were maybe better able to do exercise and stay up late and all of those sorts of things. And we maybe look ahead at what might or might not be the second half of our lives, wondering what the next 30, 40, 50 years actually holds. And we do all of that thinking about, well, those dreams and hopes I had in my teenage years or in my early 20s, are they ever going to be fulfilled? Well, maybe, were they the right ones? Uh, Do I have to do something radically different, give up my job, start something new, uh, become a different person? For some people, it becomes a a deep uh, pit of despair. For some people, it it spurs us on to new things. But very few of us get through the whole of life without at least one, and sometimes it's many of those just dips in the road where we stop for a moment and wonder, am I heading in the right direction? 
Are those hopes and dreams going to be fulfilled? What does the future look like? Now, I know that it is stretching things almost beyond breaking point, even for me, to describe entire nations as having midlife crises. But actually, ancient Israel, at this point when Jesus arrives, comes jolly close. Because when you read back through the whole sweep of ancient Israel's history, from uh, the sort of final chapters of Genesis and Moses and the Exodus and so on, all the way through to King David and Solomon, then to the exile, and then back from exile with Nehemiah, and now to Jesus, what you find is both a repeating pattern, but also an overall sweep of intense hope and deep despair. The pattern is that back in Abraham's day in Genesis, right near the beginning of the whole Bible, you see God saying to Abraham, I promise you a future. I promise you hope. I promise that there will be a nation to come from your descendants. And I promise that that nation will have a land and an identity and and be a people that will be a blessing to the whole world. And you you watch, if you like, ancient Israel grow up over the pages of the Old Testament. If you can follow the big story through it, you see it go through those sort of troublesome teenage years in the desert. You see it starting to settle down for the first time and, uh, you know, in its first home in the Promised Land. Uh, You see it really establishing itself with its kings and its prophets and and its uh, laws. And then you see it begin to hit that sort of midlife despair of, this isn't what we thought it was going to be. This isn't what we thought it was going to be. But for ancient Israel, unlike any other nation or any other person, they find that their hopes and desires, for, for all the stuff that you and I hope for, for, for security, for identity, for belonging, those hopes and desires, although they're common for all of us, for ancient Israel, those hopes and desires were woven into God's promises and story for the whole world. Ancient Israel, in, be- in becoming a nation, having an identity, in being given security, a place of belonging, in, in, if you like, gaining their desires, they were to be a blessing, not just for themselves, but for everyone. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to be the one in, who, in, in whom and to whom God's Messiah, God's great king, was going to be born. And of course, therein lay the rub. Because time and again, and here's the repeated pattern, ancient Israel found that the very gifts that God gave them to fulfill these desires of their hearts for security and identity and belonging got in the way of them worshipping God. They ended up worshipping the gift more than the giver. And there was no gift where that was more true than Jerusalem itself. Jerusalem. That the subject of maybe uh, more poetry and song in the Bible than of anything else, the, 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 the... the source of hope and of joy and of pride, and then later on of great despair and of hopelessness. Jerusalem represented to ancient Israel their sense of security because it was a walled, fortified city, a place of strength and stronghold. It represented their identity. It was where their king was enthroned. It's where their temple was. It was their capital city. And it represented their sense of belonging. Let's go up to Jerusalem for the feast. Let's go. And belong. But they became so proud of these gifts God had given them that they started to forget. In fact, to put it a better way, they forgot again and again, and the prophets had to keep reminding them that these gifts were meant to be a light to everybody. 
It wasn't a great big badge of sort of, aren't we wonderful and God's given us all these gifts. This was a badge, yes, of blessing, but blessing that was meant to be passed on for the whole world. And they ignored the prophet's warnings. They ignored uh, those who came again and again and said, you're worshipping the gift rather than the giver. And in the end, God had to take away from them the very thing they were worshipping instead of him. He had to take away from them, for a time, Jerusalem itself. The Persians came in, they scooped up uh, the best and the richest and the most educated of, of Israel, they took them off to Babylon, and the exile began. And when you start to read the prophets in exile, when you start to read people like Daniel and Ezekiel, uh, you start to find, if you like, the beginning of that midlife crisis. Doing those two things that everybody does in midlife. Looking back and wondering, was it ever as good as we thought it was? Were my hopes and dreams back then ever really going to be fulfilled? And looking ahead and saying, will anything really come of my life? What does the future look like? When's God going to do something? Now, that sounds like a very extended introduction. Indeed, it is. But it's the only way of making sense of what we now call Palm Sunday and the triumphal procession. Because it makes no sense on any other basis that a man, albeit a famous Jewish preacher and maybe miracle worker, the crowds might have hoped of the day, it still makes no sense for him to be welcomed by crowds and as some of the other... um, Gospel writers put it, waving palm branches, singing hallelujahs, treating him like a coming king. Unless we recognize that actually Jerusalem itself and the gift of a king and the longing to get rid of the Romans and to once again have security and identity and belonging was right at the heart of all their longings. They were sure God was going to do it. The question was not if, but when. And they were sure, for the most part, of how he was going to do it. They were sure that God was going to do it in their day like he did it in the past. By sending a strong king with a strong army, by throwing out their oppressors, re-establishing a throne in Jerusalem, and showing the rest of the world who was right. They were sure of it. Zechariah had prophesied that God's king would come, riding on a donkey, the, the foal of a donkey. And so when they looked at Jesus, they started to think, Is this him? Is this God doing the very thing we longed for? Maybe our middle age is over, if you like. Maybe our our real golden years are here. But Jesus weeps. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. In other words, oh, if only you knew what God was doing. If only you knew the gift that God was offering you. But you don't. He looked ahead just a few years, just 40 years after his death, when the Romans would destroy much of Jerusalem. When they would walk even into that most holy of places, the temple, and set up a banner for the emperor. In that most blasphemous, sacrilegious way. He said, you have no idea. You're going to reject the very offer God makes for you. And, of course, the reason they had no idea is because Jesus was going to fulfill their hopes and their dreams just as he promises to fulfill ours. But he was going to do so in a way that none of them expected and few of them would accept. His throne would be a cross of torture and execution. 
his enthronement would happen not in a palace inside the walls of the capital city, but on a bit of wood on top of a, a, a hill called the Skull, outside of the city walls. His triumphal procession in the end would be carrying his cross down the streets, having had his back lashed to bits with the baying of the crowd and the mob. This king would rule not by might, but through powerlessness. He would win a victory not through the horse and the spear and the sword and military might, but through self-sacrifice and death. This king would rule not over one nation in one place at one time, but over all peoples everywhere throughout eternity. You see, they thought that when it came to God fulfilling their needs and their hopes and their dreams, God would do it like they thought he would. That they knew best. But God knew best. God loved them. God wanted everything for them. But he knew what they needed better than they did. They needed a king for all people, everywhere. And they needed their relationship with God restored. They needed not just another gift that they would worship. They needed the giver himself to step into history and to give himself for them. I wonder what your hopes and dreams are. If you're in your midlife crisis or not, like me, and you look at the second half of life, what are you hoping for? What are you dreaming about? What's that thing that's going to make it all right? Have you already bought the red Porsche or started the marathon training uh, or learned to paint? All these wonderful things. If you're still looking ahead, uh, holding your breath for when life settles down, for when you've got to the point of not having to work so hard, for when life feels together and sorted, If you, like me, have met Jesus and found in him the beginnings of a taste of what might just fulfill, you believe, your longings, your longing for security, for identity, for belonging, here's the question for you. Here's the question for me. Am I willing to believe that God might do those things in a way that I cannot imagine? Am I so locked in to the way that I believe God needs to fulfill me that I'm going to miss all the other good gifts he gives me? Am I so blinkered in the things that I'm telling God he needs to do for me that I'll miss the things that he does give to me? And most of all, can I imagine that my king, my Lord, comes not with might and power and a a fanfare of trumpets, and a clash of swords, but comes in the utter despair and trauma and mess of crucifixion. It's a big challenge at Easter. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down trying to write an assembly for Good Friday, or for the run-up to Easter, thinking, how do I tell children this story that doesn't seem to fit any of the nice, fluffy things that we want to tell children or adults? This terrible moment of self-sacrifice, of death. Yes, of resurrection, but death first. 
you and I are promised, like ancient Israel, that God loves us, that God wants to fulfill our hopes and our dreams for our lives, for our children's lives, for our world. But we're also told that if we come to Jesus, the only source of answers and of hope, we also need to know that he won't do it the way we, we won't always do it the way we want him to. And so I come with my hopes and my dreams. I come wanting to recognize all the good gifts he gives me. The obvious ones, and if you've got a red Porsche, praise God for it and enjoy it. If that's, <laughs> if that's come your way, fine. But more than that, to enjoy the gift of God gives of himself to you and where he might lead you in your life to come.